All right, thanks everyone. I think we should uh, make a start. So my name um, is Camilla. I'm a member of Workers' Liberty and I'm going to talk for about 35, 40 minutes uh, on the Tiananmen Square uprising of 1989. By way of um, structure, what I'm going to do in this presentation is start by laying down what I think is the important historical context for um, best understanding the events of April, May and June of 1989. Then I'm going to proceed to the events themselves, um, how they were experienced, how they unravelled, and then finally I'm going to offer some conclusions. Given I'm going to take for about, talk for about 35-40 minutes, there will be ample time for discussion, questions and so on. So the academic Rana Mitta um, I think very usefully um, runs through the following that I'm going to talk through on this slide by way of understanding politics in China um, today. Um, and actually, it's, it's good context for understanding uh, Tiananmen in 89. So the interlocution, the kind of exchange between uh, Western political ideas uh, and China began back in the 19th century um, as the country was attacked and felt attacked from the outside, uh, namely by the so-called um, foreign devils, um, as they were publicly called, um, i.e. the forces of imperialism. And this started in the 19th century uh, with the Opium Wars. And I guess from this point on, what you had um, within um, Chinese political discourse was the entering of the concepts of nationalism um, and social Darwinism. In the um, dying days of the last dynasty to rule over China, and actually China was ruled for thousands of years by various dynasties, in the, last, in the dying days of the last dynasty to rule over China, so we're talking the late 19th and early 20th centuries, um, what you had uh, were the ideas of a parliamentary democracy, having a constitution, being part of a citizenship body, being part of an international system of nation states. These were ideas that were discussed um, and remain um, <coughs> political notions that are important today. In the four decades um, of um, a republic, China, a, a weak and unstable Republic China, so after the dynasty fell um, in, I think, 1911, um, so we're talking the 1910s, the 1920s, 30s and 40s, which were four decades in part shaped by um, the rivalry between um, the Nationalist Party and, and the Communist Party. Various isms were part of the political debate. Um, so, for example, nationalism, socialism, feminism, anarchism. Um, that said, I guess, I guess the dominant ism that was um, very much uh, part of the landscape then and now is um, Confucianism. You know, it, has, um, it had and has the weight of history behind it. And to understand uh, the role of Confucianism in China is, I guess, best explained by way of um, comparison to Judeo-Christian influence in the West. And despite the Chinese Communist Party formally rejecting Confucianism... Um, it has made use of some of its core tenets, um, hierarchy, mutual obligation, self-development, social order. 
Now, this year is the 30th anniversary of the Tiananmen Uprising of 1989, but that really needs to be understood um, in light of a, another significant event for China that is actually publicly celebrated in China, and that is May 4th, 1919. Um, as some background to May 4th, um, during the First World War, uh, Western allies um, cut deals with China and Japan, um, but did double dealing with China and Japan, leading to an outcome that German colonies that were on Chinese land actually wouldn't be handed back over to China, but would be handed to Japan. Now, in Chinese nationalist discourse, um, then and now, Japan is considered a major foreign devil, i.e., what's, you know, uh, a common name for uh, the forces of imperialism. And that was a key trigger for the May 4th movement of 1919. So I'm now going to read the quote by um, Rana Mitter. Patriotic demonstrations by students in Beijing on May 4th became symbolic of a wider feeling of national outrage that China was being weakened internally by its unstable militarist government and externally by the continuing presence of foreign imperialism. The outrage symbolised by May 4th demonstrations gave forth to a whole range of new thinking collectively termed the New Culture Movement. Political thinkers turned to various isms such as liberalism, socialism and anarchism and also sought inspiration in a variety of foreign examples including nationalist figures such as Washington and Kosovo but also non-European figures such as Gandhi and Ataturk. Um, the Chinese Communist Party was founded in the intellectual climate of May 4th, 1919. So May, the May 4th movement um, gave birth to uh, this so-called new culture. And this new culture had as its twin pillars uh, Mr. Science and Mr. Democracy. And it's, it's not coincidental at all that one of the prominent slogans of the um, 89 Tiananmen uprising was Hello, Mr. Democracy, a very conscious reference back to the May 4th movement. So 1949 uh, was the birth of Communist Party rule in China, the birth of a one-party, uh, bureaucratic, totalitarian state. Um, the brutal nature of the state was marked by various state campaigns. So um, Mao's um, starting, I'll start with Mao's initial uh, repression of his initial uh, encouragement of um, intellectual critique of the party known as the Hundred Flowers campaign. He encouraged intellectual critique of the party in the hope that um, that would integrate um, intellectuals in the country into the regime. But actually, um, it had the opposite effect. Um, criticism of the party was seen to have gone too far, uh, and it gave birth to a um, democracy war movement. So the crackdown came um, in the form of um, the anti-rightist movement. Key intellectuals were branded uh, rightist, bourgeois, imperialist. And the anti-rightist movement effectively silenced China's intellectual, uh, intellectuals for decades um, to come. Um, then, I guess notably, you had the Great Leap Forward of uh, 1959, 1962, which was a bizarre set of initiatives to um, try and launch the country's agricultural and industrial development to bring it on par with the West. Um, that was a catastrophic failure, uh, and it's estimated that it contributed to, in the region of 20 million deaths. 
Uh, also notably, um, the Cultural Revolution. The Cultural Revolution of, I put here on the slide, 1966 to 1976, um, but at, at, at its peak, 1966 to 69. And this was a huge um, uh, campaign of, if you like, ideological Communist Party renewal in which Mao attacked his own party. In fact, he recruited the youth in his party to attack his own party. And this was the peak of um, the cult of Mao. It was the peak of the cult of Mao uh, in China, but actually it was uh, the peak of the cult of Mao um, across the world as, as well. Um, the country descended into chaos, uh, self-destruction uh, and civil war. In fact, uh, in the end, by 69, uh, the People's Liberation Army forced the Red Guards, and the Red Guards were the uh, loyal youth-based uh, Maoists, um, that carried out the Cultural Revolution under Mao's initial instruction. They sent the Red Guards back home in 1969. And in fact, masses of, uh, of them uh, were then sent into the countryside for so-called re-education by the peasants, and they were known uh, as the sent-down youth. The Cultural Revolution remained propaganda in China until um, 1976, which was the year when Chairman Mao um, died. So I'm now going to turn to... Uh, the quote by Rana Mitter, vis-a-vis um, -vis the Cultural Revolution, it was strongly anti-intellectual and xenophobic, condemning those such as doctors or teachers who were accused of being expert rather than read and casting suspicions on anyone who had connections with the outside world. So 1949 to 1976 were the Mao years. What followed was um, a process of change in economic strategy and the birth of an era known post-1978 as um, the era of opening and reform, um, led by the new head of the Chinese Communist Party, um, Deng Xiaoping. Deng um, uh, infamously coined the concept of four modernizations. Um, linked to this opening and reform era for modernisation, specifically referring to agriculture, industry, defence and science and technology. Now, in the aftermath of the Cultural Revolution, uh, Mao's death, the arrest of the Gang of Four, which were um, his closest allies during his campaign of um, turmoil and terror, and um, the initial manifestation of opening and reform what you saw was a space opening for um, the 1978-79 to 79 democracy war movement, which started in Beijing and spread to other cities. Um, and what the democracy war movement was, was a, an, an organic, cathartic space in which many of the victims of the Cultural Revolution posted Dazibao, um, Dazibao being uh, large character posters, um, some were posted in the victim's own blood, uh, recording um, the ordeals they'd suffered uh, and some demanding um, social and political change. The most prominent and outspoken uh, participant of the democracy war movement was someone called Wei Jingsheng and he called in his Dazibao for a fifth modernisation, democracy, um, and he stated that basically Deng's four modernizations simply wouldn't be possible without it. During the clampdown of the democracy war movement, um, he was arrested and imprisoned. Um, it's worth noting that for many of the participants of the later uh, 1989 Tiananmen uprising, uh, Wen Zhengxing was a hero and a source of inspiration. 
So from the clampdown of the democracy wall movement onwards, the message from um, Deng Xiaoping was that economic opening and reform um, still meant a central role for the party. Deng famously said, when you open the door, a few flies are bound to get in. Um, he very much saw the party as um, the guardian at the door. To appease hard um, liners in the party, he initiated, um, notably, the 1983 anti-spiritual pollution campaign to curb the so-called worst excesses of the West that were, you know, coming, coming into China. That all said, um, the 1980s remained um, a decade of tremendous societal openness, um, particularly given uh, the Mao decades um, before. So I'm going to read this quote from Rana Mitter uh, vis-à-vis the 1980s. The group which benefited most greatly from the reforms in contrast to the Cultural Revolution were intellectuals. No longer were they termed the stinking ninth, that is, the ninth class of undesirables in the Cultural Revolution terminology. Instead, education was encouraged. The new freedoms that intellectuals enjoyed gave them the appetite for more. After student protests in 85-86, demanding further opening up of the party, Hu Yaobang was forced to resign in 1987 and take responsibility for allowing social forces to get out of control. I'll just pause um, the Mitter quote here to say that um, Hu Yaobang was a high-ranking Communist Party official who helped push through um, political and economic reforms under Deng Xiaoping's um, direction. However, because he was seen as sympathetic um, to the student protests and some of their demands in 85-86, he was scapegoated as a promoter of, I quote, bourgeois liberalism, and he was ousted from his position in the party. In April 1989, Hu Yabang died. It was a long-standing tradition in China that the death of a well-respected figure could trigger demonstrations. In this case, students around China used the occasion of his death to organise protests against the continuing role of the Chinese Communist Party <coughs> in public life. So I'm going to turn now to um, the story um, of the Tiananmen uprisings. And I'm going to draw on um, two books. One, technically fiction. Uh, the other, non-fiction, autobiographical. Uh, the first, uh, Marjian's uh, Beijing Coma. Um, and this book, I would suggest, is the best account of everyday life in and through the Tiananmen Square uprising. And it's also just an extraordinary read. Uh, Shen Tong was a participant of the student movement, and I'm drawing upon his um, autobiographical account too. What the books do combined, I think, is offer um, a really interesting, distinct insight into the story of 89 as it unfolded. Um, the Tiananmen uprising took place in the main in the months of April and May of 1989, um, and the military crackdown commenced in early June. So, as I said, in the words of Marjian and Sheng Tong, I'm now going to talk us through some of the pivotal events and developments prior to um, concluding. And don't worry if you can't read some of the text on the slide, because I'm going to be um, narrating it. So. so the first, I think, key moment, really, is the death of Hu Yobang, um, the year of anniversaries and the birth of a movement. And I'm starting with um, Marjan. Have you heard about the eulogies going up in the triangle, Sister Gal? Old Fu asked. Some students in the creative writing programme have even composed a memorial couplet. 
Well, what does the Pantheon Society plan to do? Didn't you say that 1989 would be a good time to launch another protest movement, it being the 200th anniversary of the French Revolution and the 70th of China's May 4th movement? Last month, Han Dan's Democracy Salon put up posters calling for the legalisation of independent student organisations. It looks like they have an action plan. Well, my parents were denounced during the anti-rightist movement, said Sister Gao, and I was branded a daughter of capitalist dogs when Hu Yaobang rehabilitated millions of writers 10 years ago, we saw him as our saviour. So I'm not against mourning his death, far from it, but we shouldn't use his death as an excuse to launch a new protest movement. You'll be falling into the government's trap. The universities have been told to remain on guard. The demands. We must call for the overthrow of the one-party dictatorship and the end of economic profiteering by the corrupt government officials we can ask the government to give a fair appraisal of Hu Yaobang's political achievements and to repudiate the campaigns they launched against spiritual pollution and bourgeois liberalism. We must call for the right to publish independent newspapers and end press censorship. Our demands must be concrete. Yes, and autonomously, democratically elected student unions. Shen Tong. More and more Dazibao, again, large character posters, began appearing in the Triangle. The Triangle was um, a key place at Peking University where um, posters and leaflets were being put up. No longer just memorials to Hu Bang, they included inflammatory declarations like those who should die, don't die. Wang Dan led a group of Beda students, Beda being short for Peking University, led a group of Beda students <coughs> to the National People's Congress that afternoon with seven demands. Restore Hu Yaobang's reputation. End the bourgeois liberalism campaign. Guarantee free press, free speech, the right to peaceful demonstrations. Increase the budget for education and end official corruption. A movement had begun. So the marches and um, rallies to and from Tiananmen, I guess, reached another second um, big peak at Hu Yaobang's state funeral. Immediately after the state funeral, a, a group of student leaders um, attempted to deliver a petition of their democratic demands um, to the party. And this petition was unmet. Um, the reason why I think it's significant is because it became a key moment of political radicalisation for the movement, as I think um, the next couple of passages will reveal. Wang Fei and Mu Sen passed through the second block of police walked up the steps and carried the wreath and petition inside the Great Hall of the People, emerging only with the petition a few seconds later. Look, the officials have taken the wreath but refused to receive the petition. Wang Fei and Mu Sen exchanged a few words with Hang Dan, Hang Feng <coughs> and Qi Zi. They all five of them climbed up the steps again. Ten plainclothes officers rushed out of the Great Hall and stood in their way. Hai Feng suddenly dropped to his knees and lifted the white petition above his head. Wang Fei and Mu Sen stood beside him and hesitated for a moment, and then they too decided to kneel down. Qi Zi looked a little awkward and stepped to the side. Han Dan swung his shoulder bag over his head and desperately tried to pull the three of them up. Hai Feng refused to budge. He lifted the petition higher in the air and began shouting something we couldn't hear. The students yelled, don't kneel down, stand up, stand up. Old Pew was furious. They're kneeling down like submissive subjects petitioning an emperor. It's an unhealthy legacy of feudal China. What the hell are they thinking of kneeling down like that? 
The organising committee didn't tell them to kneel. It's going to stir up a lot of conflict. Susie, some of the students at the back have got on their knees too. What shall we do? Susie undid the top button of his khaki jacket and shouted, we can't ask for democracy on bent knees. Tell the bastards to stand up. Fuming with rage, he pushed his way to the front of the crowd and yelled, stand up, stand up, to the three students still kneeling on the steps. The students behind us shouted, stand up, democracy shouldn't be begged for, and moved forward, propelling the students in front of us against swaying lines of armed police. Through the shouting, I could hear people weeping. Stop kneeling, stop kneeling, the students cried. The waves of noise rolled over the heads of the armed police and bounced off the glass walls of the Great Hall. Shen Tom makes this point. I noticed that before, many students who had never cared about politics and protests were now raising their <coughs> fists in the air. That was one of the turning points of the movement. Okay, next um, was the um, 26th of April um, editorial by the People's Daily. The People's Daily uh, is the mouthpiece to the Chinese Communist Party. It, it's newspaper. Uh, and that editorial on the 26th of April denounced the student demonstrators. Uh, the result uh, was that the following day, the 27th of April, huge processions took place um, to Tiananmen Square. Uh, in which um, the student movement successfully faced off the police and army. Um, and really, by this point, what you were witnessing in the city was a mass um, citywide um, festival of resistance. The bright sun shone down on the green poplars lining the pavement and on the green caps and uniforms of the armed police who were blocking the street ahead. The police had formed a human wall about 40 rows deep. From a distance, they looked like a belt of trees on the edge of a city. The local residents packed the pavements. Their cries of long live the students echoed off the surrounding buildings and pedestrian flyover. There was a sense that the student movement had become a people's movement. The day before the 26th of April, the People's Daily had published an editorial. We must take a firm stand against turmoil. It described our movement as planned conspiracy to overthrow the government. It created an uproar. Continue the class boycott, demand a dialogue with the government and a retraction of the 26th of April editorial. The people's police love the people. The police fight official corruption, not patriotic students. The waves of chanting voices continue to roll through the air above us and crash against the buildings. The students ran forward in regular bursts then charged at the chink, making it wider and wider until the whole police wall collapsed. With deafening cheers, the procession surged straight through and began attacking the second wall. Onlookers standing on the pavements and pedestrian flyover roared their support. The students merged into the morass of police caps, which once more scattered to the sides. The jubilant students cried out to the officers, Thank you, comrades, thank you for your help. The onlookers applauded our victory and handed out bottles of Coca-Cola and lemonade. The police stood impassively at the sides of the road, a few officers and students searched the ground for lost shoes and then flung them to one another. There's no more food or drinks in the shops around here. The local residents have bought it all to give to the students. So next was uh, May 4th, uh, the anniversary of 1919, which was another uh, major opportunity to demonstrate. By this point, the movement... Um, 
I was joined by um, organize, um, not organised workers, but the movement had been joined by ordinary workers. Also by this point, the student movement um, was showing signs of um, uh, two factions emerging, namely the dialogue delegation, which um, had as its aim negotiating democratic reforms um, with the government, and a more radical um, hunger strike wing, um, if you like. More radical, I'd say, um, in tactic, um, if not politics. So Shen Tong says about May 4th, Tiananmen Square and Chang'an Avenue were packed, not only with students, but with Laobaising, um, ordinary, ordinary workers who carried their own banners with slogans, never forget the spirit of May 4th and down with graft, fight official corruption. People were climbing the monument of the people's heroes and standing on the stairs of the buildings and everyone was making so much noise, it was hard to hear anything. Three days later, Shen Tong notes, after the May 4th rally, there was a general feel like feeling of inertia and letdown among the students. We'd been successful in gathering um, in the square a number of times, and we knew we'd gotten the government's attention, but now we were just waiting uh, for the officials to respond to our request for dialogue. May 8th. Knowing the government wanted the class boycott ended, the Beda Preparatory Con Committee... Um, Peking University students posted a dazzy bell stating five conditions that the authorities need to meet before the students would return to class. One, an apology from the People's Daily uh, for its editorial, the 26th of April editorial, and a fairer assessment of the student movement. Two, a recognition by the government of the democratically elected student organisations. Three, disclosure by the State Council of official corruption places and the establishment of a department to investigate and punish the guilty. Another demand, the reinstatement of Quinn Ban Lee as editor-in-chief of the World Economic Herald. Um, Quinn Ban Lee uh, uh, was sympathetic to the student movement, so um, the government ousted him from his role. And finally, um, a repeal of the 10 requirements that had been imposed by the Beijing local government um, for a permit to demonstrate. May 12th. The triangle was buzzing um, with people arguing the pros and cons of a dazzy bow that had been posted the night before. It is time for us to hold a mass hunger strike, the large characters said. Wasn't the first time that the idea of a hunger strike uh, had been made, but this was the first time that it had been a public declaration. The authors of the poster listed two conditions <laughs> for the ending of the hunger strike. One, that the government should officially declare the movement patriotic, Second, it should conduct a dialogue with the students. Okay, so um, another key um, moment in the, in the timeline was um, the um, historic, in fact, uh, visit of um, Gorbachev uh, to China. Um, and it was significant for the mo movement in the sense that um, Western media had come to China to film Gorbachev's um, visit. So it was a point of leverage for the movement to pressurise the party um, into dialogue. However, um, by this point, so we're talking, um, let me just check my dates, we're talking um, mid-May, um, there was also evidence of, of, of further factionalisation of the student movement um, and it really becoming a movement of, of different types of movements, which I think the next few quotes will illustrate. So back to Marjin and Beijing Coma. 
Um, the day of Gorbachev's arrival in China. Look, it's 9.30 already. Do you really think the government would hold, think, dream of holding a welcoming ceremony for a foreign statesman in front of a crowd of bedaggled hunger strikers? You lot thought you could hold the government to ransom, but they don't need to listen to you. They can hold the ceremony <coughs> somewhere else if they want. There's no point <coughs> in the students staying here any longer. Well, if we withdraw from the square now, it would be an omission of failure. Well, why don't you go to the headquarters and sign to burn yourself up to death then, said Sister Gal. The headquarters have just held their first meeting and decided to scrap that idea. Their latest plan is to get the hunger strikers to lie down on Changan Avenue after the intellectuals march this afternoon. <laughs> he seemed to have lost enthusiasm he'd shown in the early days of the movement. Then they'll start calling for class boycotts, teachers' strikes, shopkeepers' strikes, and before long, we'll have a revolution on our hands. The hunger strike has ruined everything. The reformist wing of the government wants our movement to progress peacefully. The hardliners want it to end in violence so they can oust Zhao Ziyang from power. By, by continuing the hunger strike, we are playing into their hands. I'll note at this point that um, Zhao Ziyang was again a high-ranking Communist Party official, um, uh, very much committed to a free um, capitalist market in China, uh, and in that context, the separation of market and state. Um, and he was um, sympathetic to the student movement, hence it's his reference. Who's to say that Zhao Ziyang and his lot are any better than the hardliners? I've heard rumours that Zhao Ziyang's son has been using his power to buy colour televisions at low state prices and sell them for huge profits on the black market. There's no hope for a peaceful settlement now. The dialogue was going well. Why did you have to insist that it be broadcast live? The hunger strikers didn't trust the dialogue delegation. They wanted to hear for themselves what was being said during the meeting. Everyone's focused on the hunger strike now. We have no choice but to go along with it and lend it our full support. This is supposed to be a democracy movement, not a revolution. If you take things too far, you'll be crushed in the end. Our problem now is that no one person or group is capable of taking control of the square. Shentong, May 17th. Two million people, what felt like all of Beijing, lined the streets for the biggest rally China had ever seen. The hunger strike was now in its fifth day. More than 2,000 to 3,600 strikers had been sent to hospital. Six were critically ill. The Lai Baozing, the ordinary people, were now actively involved in the movement. I heard that even the city's thieves had agreed to go on a two-day strike to show their support for the students. Everyone was concentrating on the student movement, and there was a great spirit of comradeship. As I moved among the people and the workers cheering, I remembered something that Yang Tao had said early on. This might become another movement for national salvation. His point was that in recent mass movements in China, very few people had been aware of the ideology behind the demonstrations. Their involvement had been based solely on emotion. I was overwhelmed by what I was seeing on the street, but I was worried by what Yang Tao had said and that it was true. The people were looking to the students to lead them out of discontent. Our movement was about democratic reform, but a lot of people in the square had lost their vision of what we were after, which was going to make it difficult to accomplish our goal. The next exchange is an interesting one. Um, Sheng Tong recounts um, an exchange with a leading member of the newly formed Workers' Autonomous Union. Um, note the date, uh, May 18th. Um, starting with um, 
the member from the Workers' Autonomous Union speaking. We've established the Workers' Autonomous Union and are going to invite intellectuals to come and speak to us. We want to do our part to support the students. I kept thinking about the workers and what the good Lee Peng had said about a general strike. The student movement was meant to push the country toward faster and more extensive reforms. If the workers went on strike, it could push China into economic paralysis. I was very confused about this. I still thought of myself as a reformer, and I wasn't sure that any of us were ready to be revolutionaries. So prior to um, the military crackdown, remarkably, um, the um, Communist Party staged a debate with um, some of the members of the um, Student Dialogue delegation, and that debate was broadcast live uh, on television across China. Li Peng, top um, Communist Party um, official, Li Peng was sitting stiffly on a red sofa, addressing the students in a stern and resolute voice. The government has never said that the broad mass of the students are creating turmoil. We have never said that. We have unanimously praised the students' patriotic fervour. Many of the complaints they have made are justified, and we are working hard to solve them. So the students' efforts have been positive. Nevertheless, events have taken a course of their own. Disorder has broken out of Beijing and is spreading to the rest of the country. Beijing is in a state of anarchy. The government cannot ignore the situation. We must protect the students and the socialist system. Note the final bit of Li Peng's quote um, that I'm just about to read and the juxtaposition he makes between the students and the ordinary workers. Factory workers, employees of government organisations and urban residents have gone to Tiananmen Square to encourage the students to continue their hunger strike. I do not approve of their actions. <laughs> the next shot was of Kizi, still in his striped hospital pyjamas, upbraiding Li Peng. I thought there was no need to go over this again, but you still don't seem to understand, so I will repeat once more. We will only leave the square on the condition that the slanderous 26th of April editorial is revoked and the government engages with us in an immediate, open, equal, sincere and direct dialogue. If these demands are met, the newsreader then uh, announced that the dialogue came to an end without any issues being resolved. Loud debates erupted all over the restaurant. This was the first time in the 40-year history of the Chinese Republic that the government leaders had engaged in a televised debate with a group of ordinary citizens. Everyone was astounded. Okay, so um, martial law was announced on the 20th of May. However, the full brunt of military force was held off until the 4th of June. So I guess in that, in, in, a couple of significant things vis-a-vis um, -vis, um, Tiananmen Square in particular um, happened in those kind of final days. Um, the students erected a goddess of democracy um, in the square facing off uh, the portrait of Chairman Mao. Um, and they also initiated a democracy university initiative. An official, loud, um, an official announcement blared through the government loudspeakers. While martial law is enforced, foreigners are forbidden to participate in any activities which contravene martial law edict. The military police have the right to use whatever means necessary to deal with any offenders. The crowds in the square were still shouting and braying. One side of the square yelled, reinstate Zhao Ziyang, while the other side shouted, protect Zhao Ziyang. If we're going to defend ourselves against the army, we must buy weapons and start military training. It's against the law for citizens to use weapons. 
We will wrest power from the government's hands, like the French revolutionaries who stormed the Bastille. With our blood, we will build a new Paris commune. This is Sister Gao speaking, Deputy Chairwoman of the Beijing Student Federation. I have an urgent announcement. We want to send 100 students to the barricades to try and persuade our comrade soldiers to turn back. Both male and female students are welcome to volunteer. Two student marshals escorted three soldiers onto the upper terrace. The students said they wanted to tell the students about their refusal to implement martial law order. The brims of their caps were drenched in sweat. Although the features were a little coarse, she was a good replica of New York's Statue of Liberty. She rose majestically from the middle of the square, directly opposite Chairman Mao's portrait. Staring resolutely into the distance, her mouth tightly pursed. When I looked up at her, I felt a renewed sense of courage. Students from the Academy of Music stood up and sang The Bloodstained Spirit and Beethoven's Ode to Joy. Bare-chested boys from the Dance Academy performed Shanxi Province Folk Dance, beating drums tied to their waists. The jubilant ceremony then came to an end and the crowds began to scatter. Today's paper says the authorities have called the erecting of the goddess of democracy an illegal act and an affront to China's national pride and democratic image. As the crowd roared applause again, a stern announcement blasted from every government speaker in the square. We repeat again, the inauguration of the Democracy University has not been approved by the State Education Committee. The instigators must be prepared to take legal responsibility for their actions. The voice echoed menacingly through the square, seemingly tried to prove that even the air above us belonged to the party. The distant gunfire sounded like a string of firecrackers exploding. I felt as though we were live crabs being tossed inside a scorching wok. Mu Sen still delivered, was still delivering his speech. Chairman Mao said the People's Liberation Army is a school, but did the State Education Committee approve its inauguration? The party trains the army to suppress people. We will train Democrats to serve the nation. Tiananmen Square is our lecture hall. The rest of this vast nation is our campus. We don't need the approval of any bloody education committee to establish our university. The crowd laughed approvingly. Once this period of darkness is over, we will witness the emergence of a democratic republic and all our efforts will come to fruition. Whenever a flash went off, everyone tensed up, mistaking it for gunshot. I stood at a distance from the crowd and kept an eye on all four corners of the square. The city residents who were reluctant to leave converged in small groups to discuss what they'd just heard. So that's what democracy is about, one man said. I didn't realise we'd have to overthrow the Communist Party to achieve it. They stand here and talk about democracy while the army tanks are rolling towards them. They think they can change this country. They're so naive. We told them to leave the square weeks ago, but they wouldn't listen. A few members of the Workers' Federation Dare to Die squad, all wearing red armbands, ran over and shouted, the soldiers are killing people on West Changan Avenue. The citizens need our help. Come on, everyone, let's go. We'll fight those bastards to the death. Okay. So the dawn um, after um, the army moved in on Tiananmen Square is where I'm going to pick up um, Margin's account. As dawn approached the airfield with the smell of scorched tyres and khaki uniforms, about 2,000 of, of us had left the square, but our crowd seemed to dwindle the further we went. A long line of tanks and armed carriers had formed a solid blockade, screening off the view to the square. Behind them, a green sun hovered at the horizon. 
Wang Fei switched on his black megaphone and shouted, the people will be victorious, down with fascism. So the next um, quote, which is the last quote before I um, proceed to um, uh, the conclusion, does carry with it a trigger warning. So I'm not going to read it out, but I'm going to allow um, a minute and a half, um, a couple of minutes for if you want, if you want to, to, um, to read it. Just describes really some of the, the horror of the crackdown. Okay, so I'm going to um, move to some conclusions and then throw it open for um, discussion, uh, questions. So, I guess in terms of my kind of assessment of what happened, I'd say that aside from elements of the student movement that had um, revolutionary ambition, in the main, the student movement um, was seeking democratic change through reform. In fact, many students were putting um, faith in key soft figures of the Communist Party and in the so-called People's Liberation Army to not attack the people. Uh, the student movement was, um, uh, in the end, unclear in its aims um, and in its final days was losing momentum. Um, and so I guess that's really important context then for the military crackdown. Uh, if the student movement was um, uh, uh, losing momentum, um, if this uh, government strategy, party strategy of um, holding out um, was actually working, why did they um, draw the army in? Um, and they, um, they went for a military crackdown for one, I think, key simple reason, which was the critical additional component um, that really did threaten to deliver um, widespread societal change um, that very much threatened to kind of re-inject energy into the movement um, um, that really did potentially threaten to overthrow the party was um, the involvement of organised labour. Um, and the demand that was being banded about by um, organi the organised labour movement involvement of a general strike. It was very much that, that the party was um, threatened by. Um, it was the organised labour movement involvement that essentially spurred um, the military um, clampdown. So I'll leave it there um, and then yeah, see where the discussion takes us. Thank you.